think about the day I saw the perfect jazz fest. I think about that. And I think about the love I had for white clothing. I think about that. say that word I realize do I really know how to say it what if it is hiatus anyway I'm glad that I got a chance to spend time with my family they all came to New York including my delightful little cousins our godchildren and they are teenagers and a preteen and we got to show them New York City for the first time I went to the Statue of Liberty for the first time and nope I haven't done that in all the years I've lived here and it was just great so I was catching up on sleep and getting back in the groove of things, carefully watching the news, and as is wont to happen, you know, every time I'm about to press record, some more stuff goes down. So, you know, here we are today. The president's getting impeached. I was about to record last night and just tell you what happened with the law professors that took us to, to, to school, hunt Um, A little aside, what are the things that irrationally annoy you? Someone posted that question on a line, and I happen to have this little mirror on my desk where I can see myself now, and I'm really annoyed that I did a great job with my eyeshadow today, but I didn't put any liner on my waterline. Your waterline, gentlemen, is the line, um, well, it's the under part of your eye, like a little inside there. I like to make it look black, like I'm a belly dancer, like some nice coal, just very dramatic, very Egyptian, very, um, not this century. But this liner that I bought from Urban Decay is the first makeup pencil I've worn in my entire life that I can have an issue with with contacts. And I've been wearing contacts since I was like 12. It's literally draw, like you, I put it on my eye and within a little while, the entire all of the black, very dark, 24-hour staying pigment that you can't even get off without an oil-removing makeup remover is on top of my irises, like separated by the contact. So I just kind of walk around with my waterline naked, and I look in the mirror, and I feel like I look like a mole rat. I don't like it. I don't think people should do that. So this is a, a drag to myself. Don't have naked waterlines. Okay. Let's get into the news for this week. We have so much to cover. If anything, I'm going to end up like probably taking some stuff out because a lot, it just keeps, it just keeps piling on. 
Okay, the first thing that I will talk about corresponds directly to something I just read. Um, Attorney General AG... No. (laughs) Attorney General... (laughs) Sorry. AG stands for Attorney General. So, AG William Barr, or Attorney General William Barr, who is unfortunately our Attorney General right now, made basically nothing short of a threat to black and brown communities the other day. Um, He was giving a speech. Let me find out where this speech was to what room of craven, uh, amoral, robber baron donors probably. Let me find out before I put all that on them. Let's see. Where was this hoe? Okay, I was close. It was at a ceremony to honor police officers. So I'm going to read you exactly what he said because it's so damning that it needs no editorializing from moi. He said, but I think today the American people have to focus on something else, which is the sacrifice and the service that is given by our law enforcement officers. And they have to start showing more than they do the respect and support that law enforcement deserves. And if communities don't give that support and respect, they might find themselves without the police protection they need. I really just was pausing to let that sink in. There's so many things. First of all, what we don't we don't have the police protection we need. We need police to come to our houses if you know we are having an issue with say someone who's autistic and you know very physical but perhaps has a mental illness we need help restraining people instead of you coming and killing our relatives we need you to not murder people when their neighbors call them for wellness checks to check on them so we just don't have police protection we need already and i'm confused as to why i don't even know what kind of delusional world you live in that you think that's a viable threat to the communities that you're not so slickly referencing. So to me, I can only infer that you know we, all, we don't already get that shit, so you're kind of just saying we're going to kill you more. Like, I kind of feel like you're just threatening violence because what could you possibly mean? You definitely don't mean that we're getting any kind of adequate help right now. Adequate help is not the fact that, my, you know, my transition from going to college to coming to Harlem was so interesting. When I tell you, after four years of watching white children do whatever they wanted and acting like there were no laws because there weren't on campus, you know, drugs, alcohol, whatever, then to come to New York City, and remember, I'm not from here. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, with a house and a swing set and a backyard, and, like, you know, we got houses there. So to see people living on top of each other like this, kids trying to make a way, have fun, you know, on the sidewalk or on the stoop in front of apartment complexes and to watch the way police just are all up in their ass following their every move. Of course, you're going to find them doing something wrong, A, but even when you don't, we know now that the police make up stuff. You know, contrast that with just the assuredness that white teens can go through life knowing that nothing really is going to happen to them if they get caught with some weed, like years ago, way before it's, you know, being decriminalized. A police officer would just give them a slap on the wrist and send them away. And lest you think that I'm just making generalizations or, you know, anecdotes, this is the exact prescribed policy by the NYPD. It's funny now. um, I'm sorry. That was literally the dog pulling at the child gate because she wants to be let in 
to this secluded area so she can get to the cat litter and eat cat poop. Just a life. Yeah, I don't know what kind of nutrients it has in it or it must taste great, but that's how she spends her time. How are you guys spending your Thursday? Anyway, lest you think that this is anecdotal, it's really interesting that new reports are coming out right now from a story that I declined to report on um, before, but I listened to this podcast over the summer, which I'll link the information to. Well, actually, I won't link it because SoundCloud doesn't let you, but I'll write the information to. And it was really interesting. It was about the way Stop and Frisk started. It didn't start in a, It didn't start originally just to target black people. It started as a way of targeting a lot of high crime areas. At that time in the 80s was the subway, the late 70s, early 80s. And uh, because it had found that the previous way police would do things, I hope I remember the way to explain this very quickly and correctly. Previously, you wanted to show that crime was on the decline. So people literally would not report crimes. <laughs> That's what would happen. They would not report crimes so that they had like positive statistics to pass along to the mayor of New York. And they wouldn't report crimes. They would not like go back to the same areas where they saw things happening. So basically data was not being collected in such a way that you wouldn't even catch like a repeat criminal, you know? So basically there was one very stubborn enterprising guy who, you know, just one of those people that had a vision. He, no one could stand him. He was eccentric. He would always like wear top hats and weird shit and go to fancy bars. And the police were like, why are you being bougie? So he just was an oddball, but he was very focused on, on a new system, which would codify this data and help people, you know, actually design task force to stop things that were really happening. For example, apparently, I shouldn't say apparently, that sounds like the when people say allegedly. So way before my time, many of your times, you know, the subway was a cr- crazy place. You just got robbed, robbed all the time. People just, you just get robbed. It wasn't safe. There was nothing safe about this city. So what this guy did was he, they, they, once they actually like, he, you know, it was like on the TV shows where you put up a bunch of post-it notes on a board and you go in someone's room and you see their room is plastered with articles. Ah, he's crazy. It was like that. So he kind of did that with the crimes. He looked at the time of day they were happening. He, he realized that there were these robbers that moved in little pods on the subway, which makes sense. Cause you know, you gotta eat. I mean, I'm kidding, but I mean, yeah, like, of course they had a system. They try to, it's not just random. <laughs> they try to stay alive. I mean, yes, hindsight, it seems really simple. So he, he basically, even just by tracking that, realizing it was the same train lines, the same day, we're going to put all our, uh, you know, poli- same time of day, rather, we're going to put all our police forces towards there and focus on that. They were able to lessen the, like, lower the crime stats by over half and it even turns out that once they you know arrested some of these people it stopped like half of the robberies so it was like a small group of people running rampant and taking advantage of a system that was not really working well so just you know there's a common thread there system not working well and so that is a very interesting story but it ties into jump to the present day and that underreporting thing got into okay we don't show that you know we are we are away from the days where we're not going to say how much crime is happening to make it look like things are fine we're now going to be robust in our arrest and you know show how many people are getting off the streets because 
there was an issue where Giuliani would be like, hey, you know, I want to see more arrests, more arrests. This was in the podcast. And the guy's like, hey, um, there's not as much crime. Crime has gone down, which is what you wanted. So there's literally not as many people to arrest. They've been arrested. No, we want more arrests. Broken windows. Rah, rah, rah. Fuck you. You're probably going to go to jail too now, Giuliani. But anyway, that's that was the start of stop and frisk. And of course, when you put a system that is in, you know, involves monitoring people who aren't, you know, are less able to be vocal, are less able to defend themselves, are disenfranchised, and and arresting them for dumb shit, of course it's going to be targeted towards black and brown people. That is just that is just going to be a flaw. That could just be a systemic flaw, or what's the word I want? What's the word for... There's a term when a system is not in itself racist or discriminatory, but in its application, it becomes that way because you haven't worked out those holes beforehand. And so I forget what that's called, but yeah, it's very easy to see that if you arrest a bunch of people, the ones that have more access to wealth, more access to lawyers, strings to pull are going to be the white ones, and those will be the ones that get off. So that is just without adding actually racist people pulling the trigger. Now combine that with the kind of fuck shit that we actually see in the police force and that we know forms the underpinnings of American society. You're screwed as a black or brown person. You're screwed. So, um, oh, I need to listen back to figure out how I got into that. Switched. So yeah, that's what AG Barr said. I mean, okay, put a pin in that because I'm about to bring up that story again. Because it led to a lawsuit, and there's new reportings out about some of the statements in the lawsuit, which are just so brazen, fucking brazen. It's it's really hard to, it's really hard to hear. It's like, you know it, but it's hard to hear, you know, the evidence that, of course, it's going to be disregarded. You know, black people, brown people trying to say, hey, it's not in our head. We get treated differently. Then you have reports coming out of police chiefs telling people literally don't put handcuffs on white people, Jewish people, and Asians, literally. But I'll read that to you in a second. So anyway, AG Barr, that was a threat. It was just absolutely like, what can I say? You're a piece of garbage. I I don't know what happens to the whole cabinet when a president gets impeached, but you all need to go. I will say this, though. I'm sick of this whole sacrifice narrative. I'm sick of it. Okay? I'm sick of it. If you know what sacrifice is, sacrifice is Sister Philip Marie. Okay, that's the nun that used to come teach us the catechism that got us ready for First Communion, for getting confirmed. You know why? She sacrificed because she had to wear ugly orthopedic shoes, go to snotty nosed kids' houses, and teach them things that would give them nightmares so that people like me could ask a bunch of questions like, I don't understand what's an original sin, what's a mortal sin. You're telling me there's something that God won't forgive you for, but I thought you just said if we go to confession that it makes everything okay, like I don't understand what's going on. Oh, homosexuality not, was not listed amongst any of those things. But she can't have sex. That's a sacrifice, okay? She gave up her life to teach people something she believes that's a sacrifice. Getting paid for a job with great benefits is not a sacrifice. And I just don't understand why we put, oh, he actually did right before that sentence. He compared them, you know, to the military service and said he's, he's glad to see people getting, you know, military people 
you know, having seats given up for them at the airport and, you know, people standing and ovating them and things like that. And he kind of made it seem like he wanted that for police. No, fuck you. First of all, I used to think everyone in the military was so much better than me. I was very confused because I just have a weird relationship with my mortality. And I was like, I don't think I'm ready to die for my country. I'd be like more apt to die for like, you know, those morbid logic puzzles where it's like, well, if you had the grenade in your hand and, you know, you could run into the corner and let it go off and save 5,000 people. I'd be more apt to do something like that when it really comes down to it. But the idea that I'm willingly going to just go run into a war, it's not for me. I don't know what to say. So I, I, I'm a coward. I, what can I say? So I used to think like, oh my God, they're, they're better than me. Like, wow, what kind of people have this calling? And then I found out that not everyone feels that way. And some people go to the militaries to go to college, things like that. And that's not to say I'm not calling them assholes or anything. I'm just saying it kind of makes more sense that not everyone feels like some sort of martyr. You just kind of, you feel a duty, but you, I guess everyone in the end, like you kind of think you're going to be the one that's okay. Or people usually think that. So jump to police it's even less of that whole, like that one I never had that mystique about. It's like, it's very clear to me that it's a job. I don't know why it's clear to not clear to you that it's a job. And I don't, what are you sacrificing? You could have done the next job over. You could have been an RN. No, because then you have to go to school for longer. Um, yeah, that's another thing. We have no standards for becoming a police person. It's just... It's just a hot mess. All I was really trying to say, let me stop rambling. It's a job. It's, if It will be appropriate to sit there and talk about the sacrifice and all the sacrifice when you do it for free. I don't like hearing that. You know, I'm from a family with a lot of doctors. I've never heard them talk about themselves like they were doing the world a favor. They do something that they love doing. They studied really hard for it. They get paid commensurately for it. It can be not as rewarding as people think it is. It's stressful. It's, you know, I, my mother went above and beyond. She's doctor, therapist. Like, she had a, such a loving relationship with her, her in her practice with people. And people still come to me to this day to, you know, talk to me about her, ask how she was, tell me, like, memories they have of going to her office. However, I've never heard her talk about herself like she was a martyr. She's a doctor, and she feels called to serve in a certain way, but she never thought someone was going to kiss her ass for it. So I don't understand that with police, and I certainly don't understand it. Sorry to one of you, sorry to y'all that aren't that aren't corrupt. Sorry to those men. I'm sorry for those men, but you just can't expect that kind of butt kissery when the rest of you guys are acting like hot garbage trash. So it's, it just becomes unreasonable. Um, let me pull up this article because this wasn't even the topic I thought I was going to spend a lot of time on. So today, um, it's, it's, it's this in the Daily News, but I know it's real because, again, I've like already read about this other places. Ex-cop details the NYPD co- collar quotas. Um, so this is Pierre Maximilian. And he is a retired officer who wrote an explosive declaration filed Monday in a discrimination lawsuit brought by Sergeant Edwin Raymond and three other cops. So these cops came forward to talk about all the things that I've outlined, um, the quota system, 
as it stood, they had death threats. They had people coming to their house trying to assassinate them. So, yeah, police, mafia, whatever you want to call it, it's, it's, they function like a criminal organization, basically. Um, but we're finding out lots of our government does, right? Okay, so let's see. The declaration is one of the latest developments in a long-running case brought by black and Hispanic cops who charged they were forced to arrest more blacks and Hispanics than other groups. They were treated harshly and denied promotions if they refused. Asian, Jewish, and white people known as soft targets were not to be slapped in cuffs. All cops that in that district were to fill a collar quota but black and Hispanic officers who didn't meet expectations were treated more harshly by then commanding officer Constantine Tosh. I can't remember. I can't pronounce his last name, but fuck him. Um, it's T S A C H A S Tasha. Um, yeah. So it's hilarious. It's like, Hey, you have to enforce racist policies, but if you don't enforce them, don't forget we're racist too. So we'll still punish you more harshly than your white peers who might have a moral compass and decide not to go along with everything. Um, so yeah, this, they're, this is their commanding chief who taught them. They could not give summons to the soft targets. That's what I thought was extremely painful, just to think that the people whose lives could be ruined by a summons, who your car could break down, you don't have a way to get there. You know, they are the ones that are getting them, and the people that know they can just, like, whatever. They don't even get them. They don't even get them. Uh, the soft targets were, yeah, again, white, Asian, Jewish people. Instead, it was emphasized that we need to stop male blacks. That's how they say it in uh, policing. They say the gender first. Those were the what the sex, rather. Those were the ones Tashash wanted to go to jail. Um, so the Maximilian, who's behind the suit, he's 49. He retired in 2015, saying he could no longer endure the racist retaliation. He told, you know, he tried to tell everybody, and he was reprimanded. His overtime was cut off, and then he was assigned only to transporting prisoners. They literally demoted this man for speaking up. I don't even know how something like this gets by. It's basically, if you're watching Watchmen, it's the fucking Cyclops, you guys. Um, he said the utter disregard for civilians of color and their ability to treat them like animals made me second guess who I was actually serving in the NYPD. Tasha's created this racial divide within the department. He rewarded the white officers and punished the minority cops. Uh, and he said when the white officers didn't meet the collar quota, they were treated with kid gloves, but when the black ones didn't, they would put you in post by yourself, deny vacation, deny you leave, change your shifts, yell at you, give you poor evaluations. Oh, and now uh, the dude who was in charge of all this was promoted to deputy inspector. This is just really... So, of course, the city is saying that they investigated these things and found them meritless. Um, Yeah, no, he didn't just make this up, and neither did the three other guys to um, have death threats. That's all I have to say about that. Moving on. Let's get right into the impeachment, which I'm not going to spend the longest time on today because why? There's not that much that has actually happened. It seems like there has, there sort of has, there sort of hasn't. So yesterday was an interesting uh, this, uh, the hearings that they'd been having, 
were resumed by the House Intelligence Committee. Except this time. Oh, this is kombucha from Wegmans, their own brand. It's very apple cider vinegar for it. I will say that. It burns good. It burns good. Sorry, but did you like that mukbang ASMR? Anyway, what if there was mukbang where someone just drank lots of kombucha? That would be weird. Anyway, um, so yesterday the the hearings went on, and they had three or four, I believe, law professors from, you know, the most esteemed universities, Harvard, et cetera, and... They basically broke down the Constitution and explained to these jokers what the Founding Fathers intended when they, you know, created impeachment and took it back to the basics. So the star of the day next to what was his name? Noah Feldman, Professor Noah Feldman. The Internet has branded him the Jewish Benedict Cumberbatch. They look like brothers, they look like twin brothers, and he was also dressed very dapperly. He has curly hair, which he put a part in it to the side. I think I read people, like, I watch um, these hearings on the Hill on Facebook, so you can see people's comments, which are hilarious. People were, like, thought thinking he, like, gelled it. People acted like he had finger waves or something. I was like, guys, that's his natural hair texture, real fucking lax, and stop being jealous. But anyway, he looked very dapper, and, like, he just looks like he has a lot of leather-bound books. Um... But the star of the day, without a doubt, was another feisty woman, Professor Pamela Carlin. Let me pull her resume up right quick. Professor Carlin, a leading Professor Pamela Susan Carlin, is a professor of law at Stanford Law School. She's a leading scholar on voting rights and political process. She served as U.S. Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Voting Rights in the United States Department of Justice Civil Division from 2014 to 2015. Oh, she's 60? Oh, she better work. I didn't know that. I could not tell. Behind those big glasses, I just didn't sense that. Let me tell you, this woman is the most unabashedly, like, nerdiest. It's just so, it's just, it's just delicious. Like, she, you could tell that she likes reading above all else. That's just what she emanates. But she is such a spitfire. And she caused people, she put people in their place like she needed to. She was mad. She spent all um, Thanksgiving break, as she mentioned, at least five times with a turkey that had been delivered through the mail, which she just thought was, that was beyond. She was like, that's, I know she has always cooked that turkey from home. Because she mentioned at least five times. I just sat there reading, reading the import, the reports with a turkey that was sent by the mail or something. And I was like, girl, girl. I feel you. And, you know, I don't know what kind of turkey you were able to order in Stanford. Here, if you live here in New York, you could have ordered turkey from Jacob's Soul Food, and you would have been hooked up. And when I tell you that I might let them cater my entire Thanksgiving, because I didn't know you could do that, but I was there, we were there last week before Thanksgiving, or two weeks ago, and saw people, um, saw them satisfying orders, and I was like, oh, yes. Anyway, that's a food tangent. Um, I think I'm, I think my dinner was less satisfying than I thought it was. We had a standing ovation moment I mean, it didn't actually get one, but it did. I mean, I was already standing, but I gave her an ovation. House Judiciary Committee ranking member Doug Collins, who's a Republican from Georgia, started the morning early with the shenanigans. They just kept interrupting 
interrupting Nadler, who was giving them the gavel. Excuse me, excuse me, I'd like to have a... Excuse me, excuse me. Like, everyone's acting like they don't know how the rules of order go. We have the rules of order in our fucking Jack and Jill teen meetings. I don't understand. Like, stop speaking out of turn. It's really ridiculous looking. But anyway, also, it's like your job, so we just kind of inferred that you might know how things are supposed to go. Stop showing your asses. But they keep doing it, interrupting. And so he just... I mean, also, let's just mark historically... The craziness of people falling over themselves to stop other people from talking. When you haven't done anything wrong, you don't need people to not do things like discuss facts. We don't want legal scholars to talk about what impeachment means. Like, why the fuck not? It should, theoretically, it should help you. So anyway, if you really believe in what you're saying, it will help you. So he said that, you know... He criticized the impeachment, saying it does nothing. It doesn't include any fact witnesses, which they kept saying over and over again. My bitch, you, your main fact witness is Donald Trump, who's refused to come and told other people to ignore their subpoenas. You crack consuming crack monsters. That's why there are no fact witnesses. What is going on? How are you allowed to make these arguments? It would be one thing if you were just like, most of America isn't watching this, blah, blah, blah. But Within the same, like, hour, you have to assume, like, one person who is still watching, who heard you say something a few minutes ago. Like, at some point, you have to think, people know that Donald Trump is the main fact witness and he's not coming. And I'm not making sense. Like, how do you just think it's going to land every time? I don't get it. I feel personally insulted that they keep saying these things, personally. But... He said it doesn't include any fact witnesses, just law professors who will likely only theorize about impeaching President Trump because they were too busy to digest all the facts at issue. So that's when Pamela Carlin said, bitch, I didn't even make a fucking turkey. No, no, you better don't. She said, uh, Mr. Collins, I would like to say to you, sir, that I read transcripts of every one of the witnesses who appeared in the live hearing because I would not speak about these things without reviewing the facts, which I thought was really cogent just to say, hey, I don't talk out of my ass like you do. Then she said, so I'm insulted by the suggestion that as a law professor, I don't care about those facts. Okay. Look. This has just been a time for women to be like, look, um, I hear what you said. Fuck you and your mom. Thank you. Um, next. Next question. Yes. Are you mad? I'm mad. I am mad. I am mad at you. I love it. Um, it was really powerful. And the rest of the day was just kind of interested. And, you know, I learned a lot. But towards the end of the day, I started to get depressed because I was like, it's just sad that no one, this is all so wrong and Nothing that's happening is going to sway the other side. Um, but, you know, the professor said if this isn't impeachable, nothing is impeachable. And we should cancel the Constitution <laughs> or amend it and get rid of impeachment. They said that because they were like, well, then what like what else? What else? It's worse than what Nixon did because it involved a foreign government. It's egregious, and it puts us in a vulnerable position on a world stage, and it lets everyone know that our elections are able to be tampered with and bought with, you know, any kind of services rendered, whatever. So that was yesterday. You know, so I was like, okay, cool. You know, we know the Republicans hate college and things like that. So, or, you know, they made a, hated Obama's uppity degrees. I think it depends on the person. Surprise, surprise. But, and sure enough, I actually got in a Twitter engagement with one of the Republicans that was saying dumb things up there and got a lot of, <laughs> a 
lot of retweets. It was, I was just trolling him. I was like, dude, what high schooler is tweeting for you while you're speaking? I'm watching you lie right now. I don't remember what else I said. Oh, yeah, he said, we'd like to, you know, we need to have Hunter Biden here. We don't have any of the fact witnesses. I was like, I don't think Hunter Biden was on the phone with Ukraine. Bitch. (laughs) So anyway, that happened. Day ended. Didn't think much was going to change. And then we wake up today and impeachment is here. Uh, The president is being impeached. It's no longer a hearing. It's no longer an investigation. He's being impeached. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, looking like the bad bitch that she is, uh, was gave a statement this morning explaining that, and it was very interesting language because they made sure to to state that you know the Mueller report was where it started. So if you want to say this is too short, it's not. But it's very interesting how the Republicans both say it's too short, it's moving too fast. There was one really lame professor yesterday that the Republicans have found that said, I'm not saying it's not, look, I don't like Trump. I'm mad. My dog's mad. And he's a labradoodle. He's never mad. Shut it down. Um, but, you know, yeah, so he said it went slow or too fast. And other people say, oh, you wanted to impeach him from the moment he took office. Like, yes, because you put a, an actual criminal in office who, you know, does crimes. So, it, not only did it seem like there's going to be a wealth of things to impeach him over, it also seemed like he already has a criminal past, so he shouldn't be in office. So, yeah, we wanted to impeach him from the beginning. It's not, like, wrong to not like things that are evil. I, Republicans are just playing this long game of opposite day with us that I really hope is over soon. But anyway, Nancy Pelosi had to cut someone out this day. A reporter asked her, is this all just because you hate Donald Trump? And she is, was walking the room. She'd been like, no more questions. I'll let my chairman handle. And then she walked out. And then she came back and said, excuse me. I do not hate anyone. Like, full grandma rage. I don't hate anyone. I take great offense to that. I don't like that the president is putting children in his cages. I don't like that he's, you know, taking voting rights away from blah, blah, blah. I forget the three things she listed. Those, that is the election. This will deal right now. She said, those are things you vote about. This deals with what's happening in office. And this is stuff that he has done in office. And she said, I was raised Catholic. I pray for the president I prayed for him, and I still pray every day, which is like, what? There's nothing more, like, more shady and condescending being like, I pray for your, for your knuckle-headed ass every day, that God will set you straight, but you stay on the path to hell, and I can't get you off of it. Yeah, she's just like, how dare you? And that was great, because I thought it was strategically powerful. I do think it's sad we have to get in a, like, who's more religious fight in our government. But, you know, she's always been open about being a woman of faith. And, you know, the Republicans don't like Catholics either. So, you know, that being Catholic only puts her in league with the Kennedys. But I, I appreciated that because it's powerful to have someone say, hey, yeah, I go to a church too. And I still managed to come out with my morals, even though it shouldn't need to be said. Like, I still remember things that God actually liked, like helping people, not sending them away at borders and (sighs) telling everyone that foreigners are rapists when they actually are people coming in need who need our help. Anyway, that was interesting. Oh, and I forgot something I don't even, I knew this was going to be an issue when it happened, but uh, like I said, the law professors yesterday were doing 
Uh, sadly, it's sad that it was needed, but they were explaining to us the difference between a king and a president. Um, because, you know, that's we were leaving a kingdom. We were leaving Britain when these impeachment, you know, idea was conceived of. So they really were delineating a president from a king. And that is why there's checks and balances. So they really attacked the whole idea Trump has that he can do whatever he wants. That the Republicans are like, oh, well, he's president, so he can do this and that. You know, very in a very granular level. So if I, if anyone has time to go back to at least Carlin and Feldman's um, portions of the day, I said I highly recommend it. It was very educational. But she was trying to explain the difference between monarchical powers, and she made a joke which I knew was bad because a none of y'all, everyone failed at their jokes. Hers happened to involve the Trump's unfortunate child, Baron, and. She said, so, you know, as an example of monarchical power, the Trump can m- name his son Baron. He can't make him a Baron. And it wasn't a bad joke because it was just a very literal, like, he can't do whatever he wants. And, like, yeah, Baron is a title in England. So, or is it a title in, I don't know. It's a title in Europe. It's a, it's a title. You know what a title is. Like, sir, ma- like, being knighted, things like that. So, duchess, etc. So I just think it's a poorly constructed joke that kind of rested on a few kind of weak things that were all connected, but just not. So that's where I'm coming from with the joke. But people have lost their minds talking about whether they're making fun of children, blah, 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 blah. Pamela made some bad bitch statement. Or sorry, I kept keep calling. Yeah, Pamela Susan Carlin. She made some bad bitch statement like, yep, I'm going to apologize for this. Is Trump going to apologize for anything he's ever done? Like putting kids in cages, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought that's all you could say. And I, in fact, I really wanted to tell Elizabeth Warren, which I pray to God she still becomes a front runner again and gets elected. But the only thing she has on her right now is the Native American gap. And I just, she said sorry so eloquently directly to Cherokee Nation, et cetera, et cetera. I just want her to say, when Trump brings it up one time, and I've been thinking about this, like, all she has to say is, okay, I apologize, that was a mistake. Have, and have, what do you want to apologize for? Have you ever made a mistake, Trump? Like, I want, I want her to push him to a point where he has to say out loud that he thinks he, he's kind of said it, but I'm just hoping people will actually be turned off by hearing him say, I am perfect, because it doesn't stand to reason. And so... For the people who are on the fence who think, oh, he's not a good guy, but he does this and this, like, when will they, what can push them to understand they really have a crazy megalomaniac on their hands? But anyway, that's the day the president's impeached, um, and we'll just have to watch as it unfolds day by day. I used to think that I would never, ever let anybody else eat my food again, but I guess I was wrong. When your wings have run out When your hot sauce is laid to rest, babe You'll never open your home to anyone else, you say They ate your wings Them bitches ate all your wings You see your fears might be balled up Cause right now You wanna punch them so hard And there's no one to blame But greedy bitches Eating wings Spitting bones 
and they're wrong, they're wrong, yeah. There's nowhere to hide when bitches eat all your wings, it kills your pride. Cause you don't have the money to buy other things There's nowhere to hide When bitches eat on your wings You wanna cry I'm hungry, I'm hungry Give me my wings mm, Taste them on my lips So this week, Billy D. Williams came out as gender fluid and then didn't come out as gender fluid because he doesn't know what gender fluid means. Also, the articles have been referring to him as Billy D. Williams from Star Wars, if that gives you any indication uh, as to the race of most of the readers and writers of those publications. I was shocked. Um, all right, so let's get to his actual quote. In an interview with Esquire... Uh, which was about his role as Lando Calrissian. So it was about Star Wars, I'll say that, but still. He's not Billy D. Williams of Star Wars. It's just, that's just not, that's not his first major, no, stop. So he said, and you see, I say himself and herself because I also see myself as feminine as well as masculine. I'm a very soft person. I am not afraid to show that side of myself. I wanted to go to the actual article itself to give you more context, but even in the article, it was taken out of context because, you know, interviews weave together the narrative portion with the quotes from people. So the full paragraph is, what haven't diminished at age 82 are his style, his confidence, and his effortless charm. In a simple tan button-up with his hair slicked back, Williams continues his analysis of cool. And that's when he says, and you see I say himself and herself, because I also see myself as feminine. And the, the interviewer says, when I point out that Donald Glover talked about that type of gender fluidity, fluidity when playing a young Lando in 2008 solo, Williams lights up. Really? That kid is brilliant. Just look at those videos, he says, referring to Glover's This Is America as Childish Gambito. So um, this is an interesting predicament. I should perhaps... Well, okay, I'll fill you on on the fact that then, of course, thousands and thousands of outlets said Billy D. Williams came out as gender fluid, homophobic black people had tantrums all over the internet. Really interesting to me because, again, that doesn't say anything about sexual orientation. That's gender fluid. So, again, like, I feel like I wish people could be real with the fact that what you are reacting to with disgust is the idea that a man would want to see himself in a feminine way. And I am offended by that because I am a woman. So I see your misogyny and I raise you a fuck you. But yeah, it's not really, I mean, like, say you really don't believe in homosexuality, right? Like you think it's wrong because of the Bible or whatever. Does that, I don't even know if that translates to just getting your panties in a twist every time something about gender comes up. Because I didn't see anything in the Bible that says boys will only shop at the side of Jimboree that has blue things and trucks. I don't remember. So I'm not, I just, I kind of, you know, I'm definitely on the alert when people just hair trigger, like, oh my God, <laughs> uh, he said something about gender. But anyway, he was getting praised as being revolutionary. And I don't want the fact that he came out afterwards and said he doesn't know what gender fluid means to 
take away from the fact that what he said is revolutionary because I still think you're, for an 82-year-old, a pretty advanced person if you're like, these are the parts of me. And the pronoun thing, I don't know what I could say because that's very specific to the social movements that are happening right now. So the fact that he said he uses female pronouns and then says, I don't know what it means is, shall I chalk that up to being 82 also? Uh, I don't know, but let's, let me find you the article of where he rescinded it. He said, well, first of all, I asked last night, I said, what the hell is gender fluid? That's a whole new term. Williams said in an interview with the undefeated this week, he was misunderstood. He said, but what I was talking about was men getting in touch with their softer side of themselves. There's a phrase that was coined by Carl G. Jung, who was a psychiatrist who was a contemporary of Sigmund Freud. And they had a splitting of the ways because they had different ideas about the, what do you call it? Consciousness, unconscious, it's collective unconscious. But he coined a phrase that's anima animus. And anima means that is the female counterpart of the male self, and the animus is the male counterpart of the female. So that's what I was referring to. I was talking about men getting in touch with the female side of themselves. I wasn't talking about sex. I wasn't talking about being gay or straight. People should read Jung. I mean, it would be an interesting education for people. Um, he said he was shocked to see the headlines and the praise that came along with it. He said, no, 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 I'm not gay by any stretch of the imagination. Not that I have anything against gay people, but personally not gay, he said. Um, and then the article says that he makes a mistake in attaching gender fluidity to sexual orientation. I'm not sure that he is that confused about that. I just think it's the thing that needed clarifying to most people because that's what they care about a lot, which is unfortunate and weird. Um, then he said he, he identifies as a man, a very cute man. <laughs> I feel like that's some kind, I come on. I feel like he's playing games with us. I identify as a cute man. That's where you're going to leave it. You're a cute man at 82. I don't know. I think he may be playing games with us. Cause honestly telling us, yes, I've read Jung and I'm genderless because I have both genders inside of me. If that's not gender fluidity, I don't know what is. I feel like whoever explained it to him didn't do a good job. Um, or maybe he just was like, well, if you're not talking about Jung, I don't know what you're talking about. But anyway, um, yeah, that was entertaining while it lasted. Uh, you still got to see people getting a tizzy. And he still said something that I think is kind of, um, you know, soft, feminine. Okay, the, you know, those are, I suppose, things that we eventually want to disentangle completely. All of those, you know, archetypes, but <laughs> young invented archetypes. So that's not going to happen. All right, moving on. this is just a public service announcement to say that T.I. is a narcissist and a jerk and I watched the Red Table Talks part one and two. Part two was the most dysfunctional thing I've ever seen in my life. Part one was T.I. and Tiny uh, there to cover the comments that he made. Like most rappers, like I just read Fabulous right today, several paragraphs on how even though we saw a video of him like punching his girlfriend and his girlfriend's dad in the face, it's just between them and 
it was a thing that was between them that had got to a place and then the place that it had got to, I had to come to the other place. But I'm not talking about what's on the outside. It's on the inside. It's on the inside. Yeah, yes. That's what you tell her too. That's what abusers tell people. You can't tell me. I'm in the general public. You don't get to tell me that I don't get to talk about things that I saw with my eyes on a video. I don't live with you. I'm not living under your control. So, I mean... All that was to say that T.I. did a lot of that, you know, this is private. No, sir. The entire reason we're talking about it is because you started talking about your daughter's, I was going to say Virginia, vagina. on the, That's what I used to call it when I was little. Vagina on the internet. So none of it's private. And why are you, you, you don't get to like rescind that now. Rescind your comments and be like, oh, you know, people take something and made it what it was and not everybody's a freaking victim of context. Sometimes you're just an idiot. You, sir, are an idiot. So, you know, we all, we know what she said at this point. I covered it last time, but T.I. was very, he just plays the nut role and it's weird to, to watch someone dumb play the nut role. It's almost like a frog within a frog within a frog. It's like you're pretending to not get what's going on so that you can make some grander point in defense of yourself. But the point that you're making is also unsophisticated and stupid. So you think you've won, but you've lost. So he would do like, oh, well, if a father can't be protective of the daughter, then I guess he can do nothing. Bitch, we are literally dissecting the idea that virginity needs to be protective and stuff, and you're reducing it to... If I can't protect her from, like, the wild feral hogs outside, then I guess I should just give up being a dad. No one said that. We were they're, they're trying to get to the deeper concepts of why what you did is problematic. Why do you lack curiosity about the fact that your, your comments have created New York State legislation? That's impressive and embarrassing at the same time. I mean... You said some stuff that made people be like, oh, yeah, people are really still living in medieval times. Let me go make this into law that doctors can't do this anymore because of you, you know, and then you're going to still say you don't understand it. I didn't know. I didn't know, but I'm learning more and more. It's amazing how someone can just say, well, I don't know. So then I should be absolved from any blame or judgment. But then if you don't know them, why do you want to be in charge of things you don't know about? It was very confusing. I will say he exhibited more respect for his daughter than he does for his wife um, in that episode. He he said, you know, I got my marching orders from her. You know, she told me not to talk about it anymore, so I did it. And then when she said I could, I said, okay, I'll address it. So, you know, it was it was... It was clear that he did love her. I don't understand. Sometimes I think Jada Pinkett's empathy is like overextended. You know, she's like, I exactly, I knew exactly what you meant. Did you? I mean, I think I did too, and it wasn't positive. So, you know, but she's, she's never, it looks like she's never going to have anyone on the show to cuss them out. That's not the type of show she wanted to have. So I respect that. I respect that. It's all about coming from a place of understanding to then poke and prod. But Gammy ain't always having that. Gammy was side-eyeing him so hard and just like, eh, no, I don't think so. I loved having her be like, well, I'm not your, I'm not your little Hollywood friends. And shut up, shorty, and sit down. So that was the, the first part one. Part two was just T.I. and Tiny talking about their marriage. That was the most dysfunctional. I was exhausted I, after I needed a tequila. I needed a double margarita. I needed electroshock therapy. I, I was, 
I was having, I'm going to have a nightmares about that. Like ending up in a marriage like that. Oh my gosh. What prisoner, what imprisonment must that be? It was like, and then Jada would keep being like, I know you love each other. It was like, you love each other like estranged siblings that, you know, are fighting over an estate that never really see each other. Um, who only are connected by, like, you have history, but you shouldn't be around each other, tormenting each other. And the torment was really one way. Uh, T.I. was a terror to her. She, she, the interview started out with her saying, so, you know, our issue, we, we started out, you know, we were planning in 2007, we were going to get married. He said, I don't remember that. She said, we were planning a whole wedding. He said, oh, I don't remember that. She talks about therapy, and he said, yeah, and she told you I'm right about everything. Well, there's two sides to every story. So there's not two sides to you're a cheating asshole. And cheating is not the problem, honestly. It's the way he talks to her. It was just exhausting. He tried to wear her out, just keep talking, confuse the point, get you off track, all narcissistic tactics, and he didn't sound remorseful for anything. Um, He didn't sound sorry. He just sounded... Like, an asshole. I don't even... It was just very strange. And then Jada was like, I can tell y'all love each other. But my main takeaway from that was just... I, I'm so... So... Ugh, I'm so upset by the idea that people are watching them trying to learn anything. Just because people are together and tired and miserable does not mean anything. So you ripped up your divorce papers and you decided, hey, I've... I've devoted 20 years to this living hell. I'm going to give it another 20. Might as well see if I can change this useless old t-shirt of a man that I've already invested in. That doesn't make you, that's not good. That doesn't make it good. I mean, so they're like, therapy has helped. I mean, a functional couple might tell you they went to therapy like 15 years ago. So I don't see it as a success story. And I don't want to keep branding things as successful just because people Stay together to be annoyed and miserable. And the things they said that they had, like, you know, she's been with me through some of the hardest times of my life. But he didn't really say been with me as in supported me, and that's why I love and respect her. He said been there. Like, basically, hey, my girl's a living Mayan calendar, and I just need her to check in on some things. Hey, babe, when's when's the end of the world happening again? Okay, okay. Remember, remember that, remember how funky Y2K was? Okay. Like, that's not, that's not a reason to stay with someone. You can make some new memories with someone. So, I, I, oh, that needs to be examined a lot further. I wonder what, do therapists ever just candidly say, hey guys, break, break, just break it off. Just like, if you tell them you want to work on it, do they have to, I've never been in couples counseling. So if they tell you, if you tell them you want to work on it, do they have to work on it with you? Or can they just be like, whoa, guys. I am tapped out. Good luck. Good luck and good night. Justin Timberlake is having an interesting moment that, if anything, raised my awareness of his upcoming movie. Um, He has been mired in cheating allegations since he was photographed with his cast members from an upcoming film and his black co-star, Alicia Wainwright, um, had her hand on his knee, and then they were kind of holding hands. So if you zoom out from the whole situation, it was 
on Bourbon Street. They're shooting in Louisiana. They were all drinking a lot. And Justin especially is completely wasted. Later in the video clip, it's I mean, there's photographs, but also a video clip. Someone that looks like an assistant pulls him up and sends him home. And he kind of, like, hangs over her, too. So... Initially, I didn't think anything of it. Like, I hate to break it to everyone, but actors are touchy-feely. I mean, you sort of need to get comfortable with people so that you can make out with them and everything like that or whatever you have to do on camera. So I'm not saying that I've ever held hands with one of my friends, my uh, friends married. Wait, my friend's husband. I met one of my married friend's partners. I've never, of course, I would never hold hands with one of my married friend's partners, but I'm trying to think if I was in a show and I knew someone was married, like I, and I'd never met their partner. I think it would be a little bit easy to not just be like super hyper aware of that all the time. And you just get into the casual, like touching that can happen between actor friends. Um, and that is definitely to say that it's his responsibility to make sure that he, you know, comports himself in a way that he is okay with. Cause he knows what Jessica Biel is and isn't okay with. If some wives would be okay with you putting your arm around someone and some wouldn't. And that is where I thought it mostly was going to stay. Um, yeah. Until he made a statement about it. He apologized. He made a public statement about sorry for embarrassing his family and blah, 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 blah. I was like, to me, it didn't really seem that serious. And now I feel like maybe there was more going on than I thought because I was just like, Really? Like, it's annoying that a lot of people are writing articles about you, but as long as you guys keep going out with your wedding rings, I'm on, you know, you've been married for so many years. I just don't, I just don't get why it matters what everyone is saying. It seems to me like it wouldn't last forever. You are shooting this movie at the end of the day. Now, a lot of people will be curious to see the movie. I thought it would just die down. So I'm super interested that he needed to make a statement and it makes me feel like Either we don't know what type of woman Jessica is or she's been through this before and she was like, I'm leaving you if you don't tell the world, hey, I'm an asshole. I don't know. It's kind of shocking. I mean, Alicia, the actress, has already come out and said nothing, you know, nothing happened. He's my he's my buddy now and we are, you know, we're working together. The whole crew was there. But yeah, people don't usually have secret, you know, affairs in front of the entire cast and crew because that is not a secret. I was also seeing a lot of people get in their feelings about um, the Justin Timberlake, how he cheated on Britney in their own home or something. Y'all have good memories because I don't remember the details of that. That was like pre-looking up anything on the internet right away. I mean, obviously there was internet, but there wasn't like just, you know, every single publication, you know, that being the main way that information was transmitted like there is now. So I remember this. Um, can somebody like fill me in? What, what's, what's the haps? But people are like, goes, what goes around, comes around, meh, meh, meh. What, what's going around? He's still the one who's cheat, who might be the cheater. I'm, I was confused about what's going around. Is it Jessica being mad? They're going to be fine or they won't, but I don't, I don't know. Handholding or not, they've already lasted a long time for a Hollywood marriage or just a regular or just marriage. Okay, so 
Before we go, I want to address one of the hottest things on my timeline right now, which is the film Queen and Slim, which debuted this week to much controversy and division in the community about its meaning. Uh, just so many interesting artistic conversations within. It was written by Lena Waithe, directed by Melina Masukas, featuring um, Daniel Kaluuya and Jody Turner-Smith, who... Um, I was unfamiliar with before this point. I'm sure she's been working for years. They're both British actors playing black Americans again. And they were beautiful in the film. They were beautiful to look at. The film was uh, just stunning, but very upsetting in other ways. So Lena Waithe has referred to this film as her black Bonnie and Clyde. Um, It's also been referred to in interviews with them as a reverse slave escape narrative because, and this will contain lots of spoilers. Um, I mean, I will tell the whole story. Uh, It's a couple who meet on a crappy first date. Uh, The girl, she meets up with him after rejecting him on Tinder before only because she wants to have a, have company because the client she represented was just put to death that day. And then they, are driving home, they may, which is like, hey, don't let your dates drive you home. Don't let strangers drive you home, kids. I don't know how y'all do it in Ohio, but in New York, you get on the subway or in a cat taxi and you peace. But he was driving her home, also driving home with someone you don't like that much yet because their date wasn't good. It wasn't a good date. And the police, an agro police pulls him over for failing to signal, etc. ends up shooting Angela in the leg. Oh, why am I called? Angela is her real name, which is only in the movie, which is referred to at the end. Ends up shooting her in the leg. And uh, then in defense, her date, Slim, he gets the gun and accidentally kills the cop. And then they go on the run to escape it. They Their journey takes them throughout the American South. Um, the imagery is just stunning and beautiful. We'll revive your interest in... America and our different landscapes and cultures and what a beautiful country this is. And then right when they are approaching their plane to Cuba, which was going to be their escape route, they were shot very violently by a whole bunch of police. Uh, so that part of the movie made me feel like I was going to throw up. Like I, I was just so upset. Um, and I don't know. I don't like stuff like that. It's really hard for me to watch I don't watch those police shooting videos. I don't want to watch people die, and I don't want to watch a death that mirrors things that actually happens all the time. It's very painful to me. Someone who, you know, has a brother that I love and worry about and, you know, black men in my family that are I love, like, I just... It's hard for me to... It's just hard. And the characters, you know, despite the female leads character is written to be super biting at first and you grow to love her and be invested in their love and start to think that maybe they could get away and they don't. So people are enraged about the film. They really are. And I have to say that I was a little bit surprised by how much people think they're owed by artists. Um, I was upset by the film, but I don't think that means it it shouldn't have been the way it was. I just think I got to be more careful and that's not for me. So I do want to honor the argument. Some people have said it was a bait and switch and that it seemed like it would be 
I don't know, because it, it was always called the Bonnie and Clyde narrative. So I'm not sure how it could be construed as a bait and switch. I think, you know, people were lured in by the beautiful imagery. They thought it was a black love story and a black vigilante story. Um, it is a black vigilante story. And the fact that they die does not necessarily mean that the point is don't shoot cops. You're going to die. I mean, you're going to die with, <laughs> whether you shoot cops or not. Clearly, cops kill, kill black people for no reason. So I don't think that was taking away any of that excitement about seeing this narrative go the other way about seeing the black side of how we really feel when we see these things go down um which is not like oh well if they'd only done this or that like no it's some bullshit you should be able to stand your ground and protect yourself when people come at you and there's no reason stand your ground doesn't apply to black people when our civil rights are being completely violated and ignored and we're you're you know essentially some of these situations you're just in front of a, a literal firing squad i mean this is the twenty is it what 20th anniversary 25th of Amadou Diallo's death that I'm going to talk about a literal firing squad so that is to say that some people's interpretation of what it would mean for this movie to be for us by us would mean that they had a happy ending however they didn't and the the writer has said and the director have said the movie was for us and by us so there's some interesting conversations to be had there right so when I saw the movie, I didn't know her intentions behind a lot of the things, but she's been extremely clear about them. In fact, the film has so much symbolism and that was directly put in um, on purpose. And so she's almost ruined it for future film classes at universities, et cetera, because it's not, they're not going to be able to, you know, the answer's out there on the internet. What does this mean? Well, she told you, the writer, the creator told you. Um, but what I want to say is this, and I'll try to keep it brief for my own sake. I have things to do. If you think that the responsibility of black artists is to tell stories in a certain kind of way or to be uplifting, or if you think that black writers have certain responsibilities that other people don't, that's not a, it's not a, a silly thing to believe. There are reasons that you might believe that, right? that unfortunately the position that we've been put in in a society is that things do weigh differently for us than they do for other people. They're more significant. We don't have but so many black films every year. So if how you respond to that is putting the responsibility on the black artist, I don't, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong, even though I don't agree. I would love to hear your reasoning and stuff, but I just want people to be aware that they think that. Because it's not fair for you to judge and critique a movie based on standards that are sort of secret and kind of, you know, they're, they're just kind of undefined. It's kind of just based on, ooh, I didn't, that made me feel weird, you know, and I don't like that, so fuck her. She's not pro-black. That's not really, that doesn't really track. I want the people that think that this needed to be a different way because of this you have to be able to to really make your whole argument, but it's a huge assumption to say that, you know, if this is for us, bias, if this is for us and pro-black, they would have lived because I need to see something uplifting right now. Um, that can't be true because the writer is telling you that she's for us, bias, and she is pro-black, and she made the film that way. So they're they're both opinions is what I'm saying, and... I think that the opinion that, oh, black artists must do this, black artists must do that, just say that you believe 
just say that you believe that they need to do something special and then move on. Then we can have the rest of the conversation. But I don't like to pretend we're talking about art and then talk about your responsibilities to society and things like that because they're not quite the same. They overlap, but they're not quite the same. So one of the, the biggest arguments, the biggest issues with the film, which I'll cover, were the way they died at the end. I've seen people say it wasn't as satisfying as set it off because I've seen that on the Internet because, you know, they weren't fighting back. There was something just kind of like helpless feeling about it, the violence of it. Um, I'm trying to think what other things people have said. Uh, they just didn't want it to happen. They just don't want to see any more black death. Um, boop, boop, boop. So that was a big issue. And then there was also an issue where there was a protest. So when Queen and Slim are on the run, their car breaks down. They go to a car dealership, not a dealership, an auto shop. And the guy knows who they are, a black man. He doesn't acknowledge that he knows who they are because, you know, they're famous. They're publicized as fugitives now. He doesn't acknowledge he knows who they are but at first, but when he finally does... You know, it's a funny moment because they're like, why did you give us a discount? He's like, because unlike other black people, I don't agree with what you knuckleheads did or something like that. And so they're like, he's like, you're breathing down my neck. I need you to get out of my shop so I can finish your car. They're like, we're not going anywhere without the car. So he said, here, I'll give you my most precious collateral. Take a walk with my son. The son speaks a little too precociously as a 14-year-old for about how, you know, their legacy, it doesn't matter. He, he says it doesn't matter if you guys make it or not because your legacy is what matters. How people remember you is what matters. So you'll make it, and if you don't, it'll be okay too, which is like, oh, my God, that's the part of the film I didn't need. Like, these questions of mortality just really stress me out. Like, really? It's fine if people remember you? How are you going to be comforted by that if you're dead? Like, I just, I wasn't ready to go there. But in any way, uh, any case, in the next scene, which is juxtaposed with the first time Queen and Slim have sex, which I haven't seen that explain why that was done yet, um, the boy, the 14-year-old boy, goes to a protest on their behalf, and he goes up to a black cop and says, what you going to do, shoot me? You're going to shoot me? You're going to shoot me? And the cop's like, go home, son. Come on, go home. You know, stop it. No, I'm not going to shoot you, of course, but I'm going to arrest you. You got to go home. The kid pulls out a gun and shoots the cop in the head. The shoots a black officer in the head. And then later you find out that he was killed. So as for his motives, I mean, he's foreshadowed a little bit that he wants to go out with a bang, no pun intended, be remembered. Uh, and then that's used later to say, like, this is how, look how you're, look what you're influencing people to do. Um, but Melina and, and Lena, Lena Waithe, Melina Matsukas and Lena Waithe have both explained what that scene meant. Um, they said, we wanted to speak to law, and we also wanted to speak to law enforcement as an institution, the race, racism within it, they said at the Weeksville Heritage Center. Once you put on that uniform, you're responsible, even as a black man, for the sins of your colleagues. So that, I thought, was deep. And that is just an illustration of how someone who made something you're consuming can have an intention that sounds really awesome to them, but none of the people I know were like, oh, that black man died as retribution for being a police officer, and he's a pig. Most of them were like, why did he do that? Even I was like, well, gee, you know, I'm like, geez, the guy's telling you to go home. You got to kill him point blank, execution style. You know, 
as the kid looked surprised after he did it, I kind of thought he maybe didn't exactly mean to. And he just wanted to get shot. It seemed like he did want like to die by cop to be a martyr of some sort. But he doesn't have to have intended to or not for the message to come across that if you are a black cop, bad things will happen to you too. So that's a very stark message to send out, especially even as lots of black and Latino people are cops, especially in New York City. So you're talking to the community of people that's related to them and saying, hey, Look at what's going to happen to your own. And no, we're not playing the like, I got in here to change the system from inside and, and do good things. Lena Waithe and Melina Masukas put that scene in there to show the death, to say you are responsible for the sins of your colleagues. So we were supposed to empathize with the boy, the little boy in that scene, and not the cop. And, and yet most audience members that I've heard of who talk to this, who are writing about this, were just like, what the fuck happened there? Why was that necessary? What are you saying? Black people are animals. We're going to get out of control if this happens. So it's a beautiful, uncomfortable opportunity to observe that people are just not the same. And we do not, we do not view things the same. Um, the other part is not as controversial as that. A, it's a black man that sold them out. I mean, that to me was pretty clear. Like, yeah, shit happens. We live in a place where people don't have enough food to eat. So you can't always expect people to put a theoretical cause over their individual comfort. And, you know, when America gets to be a place where people aren't struggling so much, I feel like that is a better foundation for other movements. But of course, like you got to have those movements to get to that place. And yeah, that's what they said. We wanted it to be complicated. We wanted to show how we're socialized, what the effects of racism do to our community. The black man who sells them out, he's a victim of capitalism. In that moment, you're not thinking of your values. You're just thinking of how am I going to eat? Then that's what that man is thinking of himself in that moment. He's thinking of himself as an individual and has sold out the community in order for his own individual growth. And that's all of that. We all have to deal with that in the community. And I, even without making it about the community, I would say that you're like a person before you're at the community. Like you have to decide whether you're a good person and you are willing to take blood money before you're, before you're a community member first. Like, he, that man knew when he told the police their whereabouts, they're going to get shot. They had killed a cop. They were considered armed. Even though, oh, by the way, it's very important that in the movie, the video of the incident is out. It's clear that it's, you know, was not on purpose, but the fact remained that he shot a cop and then they ran away. So he knew they were going to die. Um, so, yeah, I think even without that depth of broad social analysis, it's like, are you a dick? Yes or no? <laughs> then this is what you're going to do. And there are dicks of every color. Um, the last part, uh, they, you know, as for why the characters die, Lena Waithe and, and Melina Masuka said, or Lena specifically said, it's open season on black bodies. So, when people are like, oh, and myself included, that's what's on the news. I avoid that. I don't want to see that. That's the reason she did it, not the not reason she did it. And she, the piece is about, you know, black bodies not getting recognition in life and being more honored in death. And so afterwards, and, and, you know, when she says that, and that's her thesis statement, everything else is clear. The the way that people, you know, talk about how they think they'll be remembered throughout and the things that they want and that they kind of know that they'll, they're never really going to attain them. And then afterwards you see their pictures made on t-shirts and 
they become movements and people are, you know, it's very clear that that, you know, and so to have her say it clearly, the point has to be their death. So there, you can have conversations about the way that they died and violence, but that is a larger conversation that needs to be had. My crazy ass with all the, um, crime shows I watch and the true crime, I still have to sit with myself sometimes and be like, are you okay? Like, you used to, I used to hate watching surgery shows when I was growing Like, I don't like the real human body. Um, but like those TLC shows, I mean, where they would, people would get cut up. Like, I don't like the real human body, but I can hear about, I'm actually not going to say I can look at it. I don't like when you're watching those like HLN and, and, um, shows like that where they show actual real crime photos. That's really disgusting to me. I don't want to see that. So, I mean, but it's a question we have to ask ourselves about our violence and our desensitization. Desensit... I can't. I've come to a point where I can't say that word. Desensitized. Desensitization, yes, to it. We have to think about that. We have to think about how we... You you know, there's been some interesting discussions recently about how rape scenes are used in movies. Can we stop tossing them in there as, like, a conflict point? Um, How we see bodies used and abused on camera... For sure, something that needs to be examined. But after reading about what the intention of the movie was, I don't know that I can say, well, Lena and Melina, this is not the place to show your characters die by police violence in a movie about police violence. I mean, and yes, there's always the feeling of, well, I already know this. Am I the one that needs to see this? But I don't. I don't know. So I guess she didn't want it to be healing. She wanted it to make, she wanted to make us mad. Cause if you get mad and upset, you go act on things. You go, you're active, you're fired up. Maybe she wanted to, you know, I feel like she wants when, when, the, when there's a time capsule and the aliens come and look at what was going on now, they can watch this movie in, in 40 years. You know, like we watch Birth of a Nation to be like, what was America really like? Oh, just people riding around on horses and hanging black people. That was what the first American film was about. I feel like this, she she wanted to capture the zeitgeist of right now. Hot, we're post-slavery. She sets the movie on purpose, she said, in uh, Cleveland, because it was one of the last stops uh, of the, in the Underground Railroad, and it's one of the only states to have the death penalty, which raises the stakes for... Um, for them, the characters, once, once the incident happens, you know, she's put all these little signposts in there and she wants to create her little nugget in time of this is how it is to be a black person alive. These are the things we worry about. These are the things we're thinking about. This is how death is captured on t-shirts and on graffiti on walls. This is how used to death people are that we have these routines now used to these kinds of deaths people are. I mean, that is the story that she wanted to tell and she told it. So I, I saw a really interesting exchange online where someone wrote really angry tweets or something. And then, and then Lena about the movie and then Lena called him and they had a conversation and he said, you know, I was pissed. And then I found out that you don't always get what artists, artists don't always do what they, what you want them to do. You don't always, always, you don't always get to see the ending that you wanted you get to see the ending that someone else thought of. And it's frustrating. I mean, that's why people people are protesting Game of Thrones, you know? So, But again, the stakes for us, different. People are protesting the end of an imaginary world that found a way to erase all black people from it, even though it's not even real. 
And we are here trying to, you know, mine comfort and entertainment from something that many of us thought was going to be uplifting in a way, never in a not morose way. I mean, come on, it's about shooting someone, no matter if they deserved it or not. So it's just, once again, just an interesting place to be. These questions of art, these questions of art created by minorities. And I, I sit in the middle because I find it very stressful to think that something I write that comes from my heart one day that I get so excited about and you collaborate and you think everything's come together in your dream team. And I have a partner that I believe in as much as Lena believes in Melina. Melina is an incredible talent and, you know, all the world should be filmed like a music video. If you ask me, like, I just think the way the movie looks is, is a, is a lesson in filmmaking itself. And should win awards based on that because I don't remember when the last time I saw something shot so beautifully. However, yeah, I was saying it's just, it's so scary to think you make this thing, you're excited about it, you give your baby to the world and people are like, well, fuck you. It should have done like this. Well, you didn't mean that. Well, you didn't mean that. I mean, I think this is an opportunity to realize how different people are and the conversation that always is going to come up until we have much, many, many more, you know, black headline and written and directed films like this about what artistic responsibility as a black artist is, if any, and are black artists artists or are they some other type of activist every single time? Cause you could also want to w- wage your foot in both. I mean, if she wanted to make a movie about shootings cause it's high stakes and they might die and not put all the deep stuff in, you might say, Hey, you're shallow. Hey, don't go in the, that subject matter is tacky. But as an artist, like, can't she just, make things. So, I mean, that's me being devil's advocate without being me being devil's advocate. I can totally get that I didn't like something or I wanted this or I felt uncomfortable and also not necessarily, and know that the creator's intentions don't have to line up with mine. Um, my sister said that there should be a trigger warning on the movie. I thought that was interesting really, really unfeasible because the point is to get many people to see a movie as possible. But I do think, I mention it because I think those are the kinds of conversations that address something that's outside of the art part that one day we could have something for. Like, say there was a gun violence warning because America is so triggered. Oh my God, what a terrible word to use. I apologize. So... I don't know what another word for that is. Um, We are inundated with gun violence, and perhaps for some of us, it will... What's the other word again? It will bring up some memories that are too close to home, things like that. So maybe a gun violence warning is a thing that would happen later. I mean, some action movies are all gun violence. So I do think those are the kinds of things I want. That, to me, is like a, well... I feel this, I feel that, I feel violated, I wish it went that way, but I recognize that the thing that bothered me is this, and like, here's a way to address it without asking an artist, make a different story. So that is why I say that that is something that maybe could be entertained. Of course, you know, I don't know who's going to take that financial liability, take that first hit. But yeah, those are the kinds of things that can be revised. The, the buddy method, telling your friends, hey, this has... I just want you to know, which my sister gave me the buddy. She she told me, hey, you're going by yourself. I think it was like the second movie I've ever gone to by myself. The first was Moonlight. I don't know why I keep doing this. But I just wanted to get it. I didn't have, 
midday, I was like, I wasn't, I was too impatient to wait for the next crew of friends that were going. I was just like, everyone has seen it except for a few people. I just got to get it over with. I want to know what the world is talking about. And my sister tried to warn me like, this might mess up your day a little bit. And I thought, cause obviously I was like, well, obviously one or both of them is going to die. I already knew that it's Romeo and Juliet, it's Bonnie and Clyde, whatever. Like they're going to die. Didn't know how upset I would be by the visuals. Um, so yeah, there's ways to mitigate you feeling ambushed that I hope don't put more pressure on the artist. Oh, and lastly, I didn't, yeah, I mean, they always knew they both would die. So I don't even, I haven't even seen that question answered clearly. Like, I feel like if you ask Lena, why did they die? She'd be like, what? <laughs> like, it's Bonnie and Clyde. Don't get out of things like that. That's the point. But she did say that, uh, I'll just read this. Matsuka's explained that, so at the end, it's a white female cop that shoots uh, Queen, even though she's completely weaponless. She, she's holding his hand, and her other hand is clearly just, I mean, she doesn't have anything in her hand. She didn't move. And she just shoots her in the heart, one shot, and she's dead. Masuka's explained that she and Waith wanted a woman to be the one to end Angela's life. It served as a sort of commentary on the phenomenon of white feminism, which often finds black women's Caucasian counterparts choosing to ignore the intersectionality of equality for all. In a reaction to the 2018 murder of 18-year-old Nia Wilson, Harper's Bazaar defined it as the type of behavior that rests under the guise of feminism only as long as it is comfortable, personally rewarding, and on brand. So... The, the woman shooter was a commentary on the betrayal of sisterhood and unity that, you know, put so many people in our culture in harm's way, is what they said. Uh, yeah. So, I hope that discussion was interesting for those of you who have seen it and not too hard to follow for those who haven't seen it. I can fully warn you now it's going to take you on a ride you'll fall in love with the characters and be very hopeful and be lulled by the beautiful scenery and then you'll just be like oh what happened to my heart so that's my warning for you and i hope you go out and see some art that makes you think this week and some art that makes you smile and stay up to date in the impeachment because who knows maybe i'll be president next week anything can happen now All right, thank you for listening to another episode of Cake and Kombucha, and I will catch you on the flippy-top, tippy-top to the runny-top. Cake and Kombucha is produced and hosted by actress, writer, and singer Kelechi Azia. It features music by the talented Melanie J.B. Charles. If you like what you hear, check out MelanieJBCharles.com. Shut down, shut down.